Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And joining us this week is Josh from the Four Nerds by Nerds podcast. Josh, welcome aboard. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Um, So we... With guests, before we get into the film itself, uh, we'd like to ask you a few spy-related questions, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. Right. Now, what is your favorite spy film? Uh, I'd have to go with Casino Royale. Mm, good pick, good pick. What is it about that one that jumps to the uh, head of the pack for you? I think it's just so well done, especially, like, it was such a bre- breath of fresh air from, like, the Bond movies we had been getting. And must have heavily been influenced by this series. Like, it just takes Bond more into, like, a more realistic setting. Wait, are you saying you weren't a fan of Die Another Day? <laughs> no, no, I'm not a fan of, uh, what was he doing in that? Uh, parachute surfing on an avalanche or something like that? <laughs> on a tsunami. On a tsunami of all things, yeah. <laughs> what about that isn't realistic, Josh? <laughs> I mean, I've never done it, but I'm, I'm, I've also never tried, so I can't say I couldn't do it. Hmm. Um, does that mean that Daniel Craig is your Bond? Um, I guess so. I haven't seen a great deal of his movies. I've only seen the first two. So, mm. but I do love Goldeneye as well. So it is, it's a toss-up between between the two. But I do love. I love Casino Royale a lot better than I love uh, Goldeneye. So, yeah, yeah, I'll take Daniel Craig as my Bond, I guess. I can't believe you, you, is it, you've just seen Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace so far. Yeah, yeah, I just kind of like kept missing them. And then I'm like, well, I can't watch the new one until I go back and watch the other ones. And then I just like got off track. You should definitely cover them maybe on your podcast going forward. I think uh, Skyfall might be quite a revelation for you. Yeah, we, we have a rule about not. Uh, skipping any movies like we do mm. movies in orders but with james bond i definitely think that we would start at uh casino royale because it is kind of like a fresh starting point without having to do what 21 movies before that 25 yeah. <laughs> or, or before that i guess what like 20 yeah yeah 20 yeah that was i mean it's something that we're doing but then we just deal with spy movies so of course we're going to tackle them all yeah um but apart from james bond any other favorites I do love I do love the uh, the titular movie from this show, Spy Hard. <laughs> That's a fun one. <laughs> one day we're going to cover it. I think maybe like our hundredth episode or something like that will do it. I don't know. Down the road, yeah. Leslie Nielsen's so great. He is missed. It's <laughs> very true. Well, I think we should get onto what we're dealing with this week, Cam. Yes, we are going to go back to 2012 to hang out with Bourne. Oh, sorry. Cross in the Born Legacy, which should have been called the Cross Legacy, I suppose. <laughs> it's just not got the same ring to it, does it really? <laughs> I guess. Sure, it's fine. <laughs> um, well, before we get into the details about how this film came to be, let's get out the way our letterbox.com synopsis. The Born Legacy. There was never just one. New CIA operative Aaron Cross experiences life or death stakes that have been triggered by the previous actions of Jason Bourne. Wow. That's, Is that it? That's it. 
That is unbelievably succinct. I really thought with this one, we would be looking at like 17 lines explaining all the backstory and what have you going on with this movie. I had to jump through hoops to do it. I, didn't, I never got the impression he is a new CIA operative, but I don't know. Well, he's, he's doing his training, though, at the start of the movie, so he is kind of new. Was that his training? I think so, yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, well, so guys, I never saw this one in the cinema. I might have watched it at some point when I was watching the Bourne films, but I had no memory of it, which uh, I don't know what that means. But um, Josh, did you catch this in the cinema at all? No, I watched this for the first time about two hours ago. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. This is a fresh take. Uh, Cam, what about you? Yeah, I saw this one in theaters back in the summer of 2012. I can't imagine I was excited to see it. (laughs) That seems very unlikely. Um, But I I do remember going and more or less enjoying it, walking out going, that was fine. Um, I can't say, though, that in that moment, walking out of that theater in 2012, I was like, I need to see what Aaron Cross does next. Give me more Renner. (laughs) <laughs> uh, hey, I will always, I will always say, give me more Renner. But I can't say that Aaron Cross was a character that I was like, I need more. Like, obviously, there is so much mystery to untangle here. This is a franchise that is building whole new angles that are fascinating. I was kind of just like, yeah, it was a fun couple hours. And uh, hey, what do you want to do now? That kind of thing. Okay. Um, I mean, out of the three of us, I think you're the only one with some sort of thought about this film going into it, apart from me just forgetting it existed. So, uh, Cam, how did we get from Ultimatum to Legacy? Right. So, originally, Ultimatum was kind of viewed as the end of a trilogy, but it was very successful. Very, very successful. Won a few Oscars, critics darling. And so, the producers, Frank Marshall and Pat Crowley, were like, hey... I think we could make a Bourne 4. <laughs> That's how Hollywood works, people. I just hear that cash register. That's right. And so they decided to start developing a fourth. Uh, Paul Greengrass and Matt Damon were both involved initially. And um, the Bourne Legacy title floated around, but there is an actual novel called The Bourne Legacy. It actually is about Jason Bourne, which makes a lot more sense. And it was written by Eric Van Lustbader, who took over writing the character after Robert Ludlum had passed on. Um, that novel, if you read the synopsis on Wikipedia, in absolutely no way reflects anything that happens in this movie, true to the Bourne franchise. <laughs> and so, uh, yes, they brought on George Nolfi to write Bourne 4, and he had written Ultimatum, or at least had a credit. Uh, several people wrote Ultimatum, but he was one of them. And he worked on a draft of Bourne 4, but his time was kind of uh, thin because he was heading off to make his directorial debut, The Adjustment Bureau, with Matt Damon. So he had to leave. They weren't thrilled with the script. They were like, okay, well, this isn't necessarily the most workable. So they came up with an idea. They brought in Josh Zatumer, who at that point was pretty much unknown. He'd done uncredited rewrites on Quantum of Solace. Um, he would go on and write the RoboCop remake as well as the Peter Berg, uh, Mark Wahlberg film, Patriot's Day but at the time, fairly unknown. And they basically told him, can you just write a whole new Born 4 script? So we had dueling scripts. And the idea was pick one or the other or possibly combine them together. But this process went nowhere because it was decided that really they couldn't figure out any story to tell about Jason Bourne. Now I'm curious from you guys, after the Bourne Ultimatum, did it feel like there was more story to tell? I haven't seen. Um, 
the born ultimatum so i there were parts of this that i didn't really understand <laughs> oh no, um, that's that's interesting then yeah i look forward to delving into this movie and seeing how <laughs> comprehensible it is to someone who hasn't watched the other movies yeah i've seen the born identity and i really like that one and then i've seen it was kind of the same thing with the the daniel craig bonds it's i missed supremacy and then by the time ultimatum came out i was like i gotta i gotta piggyback this <laughs> But that was also around the time of like the, the concrete fall of the video stores and stuff. So, sure. so it was in this weird period of time where it's like if you miss something, it was hard. It was a little hard to find. Totally. Unless you wanted to like buy buy a hard copy and actually own it. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I'm going to like it, so I'm not going to buy it. What about you, Scott? I, I got the impression that it was the end for Bourne. Uh, I mean, coming into this podcast, obviously, I know what films have come out since that point. But I just felt like it was so neatly wrapped up. It really is. It, and I can remember walking out of Ultimatum being convinced that probably was the end. Hmm. But, um, you know, money talks. And so what happened was Damon and Greengrass were involved to a certain point. But because this thing wasn't moving, born for, they were struggling. Um, Greengrass dropped out, ended up going over to make The Green Zone, which was the um, Iraq War film. Um, and Matt Damon ended up going and starring in that movie. The two of them just left the project because Matt Damon said he didn't want to do it if Greengrass wasn't doing it and Greengrass ah, he just couldn't come up with anything that workable and so the producers were kind of stuck they had a very profitable franchise but not really sure what to do with it they considered a prequel they considered recasting they considered passing on the mantle ultimately what happened was Tony Gilroy who'd had writing credits on the first three movies came in with a take and if you recall Tony Gilroy had clashed with Greengrass and Damon on Ultimatum. But Gilroy is someone who'd been there since day one. He came in with the idea and said, what if there's a larger conspiracy? And they were basically like, sure, go for it. And so he ended up taking over writing duties on what became the Bourne legacy. He, at that point, had also directed his first two films, Michael Clayton and Duplicity. So he was a legit director at this point. Part of the deal with him writing the script was that he would direct it, but it wasn't announced right away. That came that announcement came a little bit later down the road. Um, he brought on as well his brother, Dan. Dan Gilroy is a very talented guy on his own right. He started out his career writing things like, kind of like schlocky stuff like Free Jack. Um, he moved on to things like Real Steel and Two for the Money. Before landing as a writer-director, he did the movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal, which yeah. is incredible. Great film. Yeah, it was a great film. And he, since then, he's written the script for Kong Skull Island, as well as written and directed Roman J. Israel Esquire with Denzel Washington and Velvet Buzzsaw with Jake Gyllenhaal. So he, he's a guy who's consistently working as well. So you had the two brothers here working together. And <laughs> the pitch that um, Tony Gilroy came up with, or the, his way of summing up the, the movie of what the Bourne legacy is, is <laughs> kind of uh, really funny. It's quite pretentious, but I... Totally appreciate it. He said, if you think of the first three Bourne films as Rosencrantz and Gilderstern, then we're showing you Elsinore. So you thought you were seeing something you weren't. What if there was a larger story? What if Treadstone weren't the only Black Ops program? I think that's a really promising idea. Now, guys, what does that pitch mean to you? <laughs> I mean, absolutely nothing. I was hoping you two knew what it meant. Like, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Rosencrantz and G Gilderstern are characters, the comedic relief in Hamlet, and Elsinore is the kingdom or, or the lands of where Hamlet is set. So I guess he was basically saying, 
if we move away from specific characters into the larger world, that's what he's trying to say. But I love the quote. It's, I, I think I may frame that one and hang it on my wall. <laughs> uh, you might as well just say like Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra and expect people to understand what it means. <laughs> so the idea was, let's blow this world open. And as the producer Frank Marshall said with this movie, like all possibilities are open. We can do all sorts of things. So they went to a look at casting this movie and obviously Damon's out. So they're like, okay, who do we get to replace him? Some of the initial people considered were Joel Edgerton, Luke Evans, Anthony Mackie, Garrett Hedlund, and Oscar Isaac. They all tested for the role. Jeremy Renner wasn't available initially. He ended up being kind of available later down the road in terms of the process. At this point, he's done Avengers and he's definitely on the rise as an action star. He showed up and was available and they were like, bingo, bango, cast this guy. And then they went to production. And it doesn't seem like a lot of the Bournes that it was a real, you know, rewriting this movie on set kind of problem. It was just, you know, it seemed like it was a very efficient blockbuster production that went through. Although at the end of the process, um, Tony Gilroy said, I'm so tired. The idea of doing this again is really incomprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have so many questions at this point. I am, I'm scratching my head as to how this film came to be, apart from the fact of just the money signs. Sure, sure. Why? Um, <laughs> wow, really uh, <laughs> foreshadowing your thoughts on this movie, Scott. But um, <laughs> this movie cost $125 million, so typical born money, really. Um, domestically, it made $113 million, international $162 for a worldwide total of 276 More of a break-even venture than really a profit venture. I can understand that. I mean, it didn't have uh, Matt Damon behind it, so I can see why some people didn't turn up. Yeah, in comparison, so this one made 276. Um, Identity did 214, Supremacy did 290, and Ultimatum did 444. So that's quite a drop-off from Ultimatum when you want to build off your previous film, for sure. A bit that bugs me about what you've just told me, um, and, and you used the word pretentious, and I think that's probably the correct word, Uh even Supremacy and Ultimatum have that sort of conspiracy and a conspiracy thing going on. So what Tony Gilroy came up with for this isn't exactly original. Well, I look forward to talking about that in a few minutes because I think there's a lot to delve into with the Bourne legacy. Um, just to kind of finish off the year that was 2012, we talked about this one with Men in Black 3, but um, at number one, you had Avengers. Number two was Skyfall. Number three was The Dark Knight Rises. This landed at number 29 at the Worldwide Box Office, right between two very patriotic-sounding films, John Carter and Lincoln. <laughs> Which one was John Carter? John Carter was the adaptation of the Edgar Rice Burroughs um, uh, Princess of Mars film. Oh, it was the, the John, Disney one. Yeah, John Carter of Mars. Um, very flawed movie. Kind of interesting, though. Um, the other spy movies for this year, number 10 was Men in Black 3. Number 38 was Safe House. 40 was Total Recall, the remake. 51 was This Means War. Number 57 was Zero Dark Thirty. And a couple other notable things I'll just mention. Edward Norton also starred this year in Moonrise Kingdom, the Wes Anderson movie that's fantastic. It landed at number 97. And Scott Glenn, who pops up in this movie, appeared in the very campy, one of the most ridiculous movies of 2012 called The Paperboy, the Lee Daniels film which landed down at number 486. It's an insane movie, though, for anyone that's seen it. For, I, should I see it? It doesn't sound like I want to. 
no, it's like a melodrama kind of a boy. I don't even know what to call it. It's a absolutely insane movie with uh, Zac Efron and Nicole Kidman. Okay. Is this a dark twist on the Paperboy video game? I wish. Oh my god, I would so tune in for that. <laughs> so that sums up the uh, the Born Legacy in terms of behind the scenes and box office. I'd also like to add before we move any further. Don't don't sleep on uh, Free Jack. You got a stellar cast there. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Mick Jagger, <laughs> Amelia Estevez, Anthony Hopkins, Mick Jagger for some reason. <laughs> Well, you know, you haven't seen The Born Ultimatum. I haven't seen Free Jack, so I think we're even. <laughs> it is insane. <laughs> I actually do. I'm not even lying. I have a copy of it sitting on my DVD shelf, though. So it's I'll watch it at some point in the near future. Watch the trailer. Just watch the trailer on YouTube. It's, it's really it's really a nuts trailer where, like, I think at one point it's just a black screen and Emilio Estevez's face and Anthony Hopkins' face, and they're just, like, screaming at each other's face. It's fantastic. Sounds like a David Lynch film. (laughs) It's so weird. (laughs) Very nice. Um, Right. Let's get into the meat of this film. Uh, Josh, you're our guest. And amazingly, you haven't seen Supremacy and Ultimatum. So this is a test to see if a film can stand up in its own right. What did you think of The Bourne Legacy? Uh, I didn't think it was awful. I uh, I liked the acting. It was a really great cast. Um. Some certain things were just like a little confusing. Um, mostly, I feel like because they just kind of tried to shoehorn certain aspects in there. I feel like the uh, deposition of the blonde lady from definitely the other Bourne movies, who I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then that one part where they're just like Jason Bourne's here in New York, and then they just never go back to that at all. Like. Is this movie taking place like during the end of Ultimatum or something? Yeah, it's happening concurrently with the events of Ultimatum. Yeah, that's what, that's what I figured, and it was. But I thought it was good. I, the I'd say the biggest downfall is that uh, people think that movies are a lot are really exposition heavy, and this one is a little bit. But I feel like it's more like scene setup heavy, and then there's like never really a lot of payoff to those. <laughs> Like a, most of the, a, a vast majority of the scenes seemed like they were setting up four scenes, and then it just never happened. Kind of like in uh, West Wing when the they're all walking down the hallways, is <laughs> a lot of that, and then it just never went anywhere. <laughs> yeah, it does feel weirdly divorced when you're looking at like the characters played by Ed Norton and everything versus what's going on with the Aaron Cross story. It doesn't have the connection points you get in the other Bourne films quite as it's it's not as clean. It's just strange because it's got that sort of um, the Wrath of Khan situation where, you know, Kirk and Khan aren't ever really on the screen together. Right. Uh, they're definitely not on set together. But that film managed to pull it off. And to be fair, Supremacy, Ultimatum, even Identity have scenes of people in offices, you know, going, Jesus Christ, that's Jason Bourne. Yeah. And you still buy it and you still are, you know, pulled into the film. Whereas this one, yeah, I, I get it. It does feel sort of divorced from each other. Well, certain scenes, like certain sections of the movies, just kept going on and on and on. like, especially like the beginning, which I really liked. I liked the whole all the stuff in the woods and everything. But I'm like, where is this going? Like this opening like segment has been going on for about forty five minutes. Yeah, it, it it takes its time. It does take its time. I'm curious, Scott. You didn't really remember if you'd seen it at all. What did you think revisiting it? I don't think I'll remember it after watching it for this. Mmm, damning. 
Yeah. Um, I, I have no problems with Jeremy Renner, to be fair. Uh, I think what he did was fine. I think what the problem this film had was on the page and it just wasn't interesting. It, it didn't have a story to tell. And the whole like, you know, conspiracy and a conspiracy thing had been done in Ultimatum and Supremacy. And also having it run concurrently with both of those films. Well, Ultimatum did that. And that was a surprise for, you know, that film. So doing it again for this one just feels like it's sort of treading the same ground again. Treading? Oh. <laughs> it is a little bit of a like shame on the studio for a lot of this stuff. Like... Like you said, with how much money it made and stuff, and they clearly looked at that as like a disappointment because there was no sequel to this movie. Um, but it's like you you aren't really riding the coattails of of Ultimatum enough to be thinking that this movie should make as much or more money. You're kind of like soft rebooting it at this point. So to to take a movie and be like, oh yeah, no, we're gonna make four hundred million dollars off of this is a little odd. <laughs> I'm always fascinated when franchises, for some reason or other, can't continue down the road that they want to do, you know, with their popular characters and wind up with these weirdo sequels. I think of like Halloween 3 with the masks that has, you know, no sign of Michael Myers throughout the entire movie. Or even like the Curse of the Pink Panther, where it's like Clouseau's son, played by the dad from Blossom. Like, I always find these kinds of sequels fascinating because it's like... They desperately wanted money, obviously, from the franchise they viewed as very lucrative, but they couldn't do it in a way that audiences wanted. <laughs> and so you get these kind of weird projects. And I feel like Born Legacy falls into that, maybe not as offensive as Curse of the Pink Panther or Halloween 3, but it's a weird movie that almost just exists as an island unto itself. Like, there's nothing to connect it going forward they drop all the threads after this one it's like okay it's just this weird little orphan but i kind of enjoy it like it's a movie that's very flawed i think the problem is i look forward to diving deeper into this going forward but you know the first born films really had a really good hook of you know a assassin or government agent with amnesia and rediscovering who he is that is an awesome hook to sell people heck it worked for the long kiss goodnight as well um I think there's a big difference between that and we have an agent that needs his pills. He desperately needs his medication. Like that just doesn't quite sell as well. And I found a lot of that sort of material lacking. The action stuff is fairly well done. Um, it's not as, it, it takes a different approach to action than what Paul Greengrass did. And I thought it was actually fairly well shot just in terms of directorial style. But it's a movie that like, as much as I like the actors, there's a few scenes I want to talk about, you know, later in this podcast that I think are actually fantastic scenes. But as an overall film, it's sort of frustrating in that I can enjoy bits and pieces of it. I would not at all throw a fit about watching it again, but it's not the most satisfying, especially considering the previous three movies before it. So that was kind of where I came down. It's it's really strange because I, I feel like this film doesn't work as a direct sequel to Ultimatum. No. But I don't think it stands up on its own either. Yeah, it's weird because it's doing that sort of, um, you know, Scott, you and I talk a lot about Twin Peaks and the Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me film throws in all these little elements from the TV show um, while also just kind of not giving fans of the TV show what they want. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what this movie does. I think Twin Peaks is a higher form of art than what this is doing. But it is that sort of idea where 
it's not giving audiences what they want, which is a Jason Bourne story, but it's also throwing in these weird scenes, you know, as Josh pointed out, you know, featuring Landy or the Noah Valson character where they would mean absolutely nothing to someone who's just coming in fresh for this. So like, what is the point of those scenes other than to try to just convince people that this movie is legitimate as a born entry? I think that this would have been a lot better if a, they just had divorced themselves from the whole born idea completely. Because if you just take a step back and I feel like kind of not a problem, but I, I feel like just a little bit of an enjoyment issue when it comes to the Bourne franchise is that it is a little overly complicated because they are just throwing so much information at you constantly that it kind of like pauses the story for you to have to like digest all this information and remember it and keep track of things that are changing or it turns out this was a lie or whatever. If they had made this like a prequel, especially with like the drug element, because you have Jason Bourne who is just trained, right? There's nothing special to him, right? He was just trained. Like the fact that he winds up having amnesia and then is like relearning all this shit. Um, But like he, he just does it. And then, all of a sudden now they're duplicating that with drugs instead of just training. Am I missing something there? Or is that like, is that just what they were doing? That seemed to be the case that, yeah, it was this side program over, what is it? Overcome, which is not as cool sounding as Treadstone or Blackbriar, but nonetheless, um, that they have an alternate super soldier program that deals with these, yeah, these pills, the chems, I mean, if this movie was a drinking game, you would be dead every time, you know, or, uh, <laughs> if you tried to take a shot every time someone said chems. But um, it, it's weird. I don't know why they didn't make it a prequel. Why not set up that they were trying these types of experiments, I don't know, in the 80s? Like, what about an 80s period piece? You could set it around the time of when those actual Robert Ludlum novels were written and have agents in the past who are dealing with medications. I actually think that could be... It's a fresher start for a you know a new franchise, but it also allows you to tie it all together. I think that could have been really interesting. Well, I think it makes more sense. Like we had this flawed system of drugs that, like, if you didn't take, if you had to stop taking them, you basically lost your mind or your abilities or whatever. And then they figured out whatever sort of psychological training that they needed to come up with to just kind of coach people like Jason Bourne to become naturally like a super soldier. It kind of is like, it's odd that you would be able to master it without any drugs. And then all of a sudden you're like, we're going to try to do it with drugs now. Well, they could have lent on all the sort of the MK Ultra stuff that the US did in the 60s, 70s. They, they could have had a lot of fun with an idea for a prequel. And I, that actually sounds far more interesting. Plus, you can play with the whole being set in the 80s and how you make it look and stylized uh, compared to sort of the dreary kind of looking color palette of the first three Bourne films. Well, then if you pull, if you just pull the Bourne elements out, if you had just made this, like, you know, some other action movie, some spy movie where he's just taking pills and it makes him a super soldier and you take out a lot of like the clunky dialogue of trying to like forcefully put in all this like espionage lingo and all these like um, messages about like all these hidden projects and everything and just made it like a more of a straightforward action movie. I think people probably would have enjoyed that a lot more than trying to be like, 
well, this isn't born and that he's not Matt Damon and what's going on and how is this related? And when does this take place? Like, I think trying to figure all that out while you're also trying to digest all the information that they're giving you is probably what hurt this film in the long run. I find the mystery of it, like this whole chem thing, very baffling because I get what they want to do. Have you ever, have you guys ever heard of Flowers for Algernon? Yeah. Heard of it, yes. Yeah, I haven't read it either. I'm aware of the story, though, where it's, it involves a guy who takes medication that makes him smarter and then dealing with sort of the ramifications of what happens when that medication's unavailable or you start to basically go backwards in intelligence. Um, they made a movie called Charlie um, many years ago, back in the, maybe the 50s. There was a loose adaptation of it, very loose, but um, really terrific movie. And that seems to be what they're kind of going for here with the whole chems thing, the blue, the green, the blue, the green, um, that are mentioned constantly. But why is it, you know, Aaron Cross is desperate for this medication throughout this movie. Like that is his driving force for Matt Damon's character. It's recovering his memory for Aaron Cross. It's getting these pills he needs. Why do we not see like an agent who's losing his abilities over the course of this absence from taking his pills. Like, I think that could be really compelling to see someone who is a superhuman agent who's losing his abilities and the danger is only building up as he's trying to get his medication. Like, I feel like there's a little more suspense to that, but they don't exploit it whatsoever. Instead, what you get is uh, Aaron Cross falling asleep on a motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) Although, was that from the chems or was that from being shot? (laughs) I assumed it was the chems. But I, I, I couldn't tell. I'll tell you a funny story. So, Cam, you know that I watch these films uh, twice, usually, yeah. for the podcast. Uh, the second one I usually watch right before. So I was probably watching this around the same time Josh was watching it. I fell asleep. Because <laughs> of the chems? Because of the chems, of course. <laughs> no, I'm used to those. That's fine. By the way, do you have any blueies? <laughs> <laughs> some greenies. I did not understand that scene with uh, that was Oscar Isaac, right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yes, where he like hides his meds, and then he's like, "Oh yeah, do you have meds? I, I don't. I didn't have any chems. I lost my chems." Was he? What I didn't understand. What the hell was happening there? He just assumed he was going. He was there to for him to kill him, so he wanted to know where his stash was or something like that. Like a lot of that did not make sense to me. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of like paranoia to that setup because at one point, I think it's Cross as like, who's evaluating who here? And I think the idea is like, maybe he is there to take him out and maybe take his medication. Like, I think these guys are very possessive about their medication. (laughs) Yeah, I just kept waiting for something to happen there, like one of them to shoot the other one. And I'm just, and then it was just a couple of scenes of them eating food together. (laughs) I remember seeing this in theaters and that whole sequence, that whole buildup of these two guys sitting in a cabin. I remember just sitting there in the theater being like, when is this going to go somewhere? I didn't find that rewatching it last night. Last night I enjoyed it more knowing where the film would be going anyway. So I will say on my first go around, I was like, this is, this is ridiculously slow burn. Like I find born films typically are very propulsive. Even the first one, which doesn't have the template and kind of the feel of the Greengrass films still is very propulsive a lot of the time. And this one, it likes to take its time and really relax from time to time. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that, Camp, because I, I made a note of this. This is apparently, and this is including Jason Bourne, which we'll be covering later on, um, the longest Bourne film. Yeah. 
and it feels like it. I, there's a reason I fell asleep, and, and I fell asleep 35 minutes into the second viewing, and I woke up at the end when he was asleep on the motorcycle. So, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what that says about the film, but yeah, I I don't know why they made this choice, and we I think we're all right if they had just cut out all of this treadstone, uh, briar patch or whatever it's called. Um, <laughs> Lark, I like that. The program. I don't know. Cut yeah, it they out. just bring that one in out of nowhere. They're yeah. like this. It's 20 minutes left to this film. Let's introduce something completely new. We haven't talked about it all. It's like a video game. It's like you're playing Resident Evil or something like that. And, you know, oh, you've beaten the tyrant. Oh, wait, there's a better one around the corner. Here he comes in the last five yeah. minutes of the game. So you can use all your ammo up. But uh, it's a film. It's meant to be somewhat realistic. I don't know if there's any complexity to mine into in this world like so much of this movie in terms of the pitch was let's look at the wider universe of born but i feel like when we do that all we do is revert back to the very basic formula of a born film really raising questions as to how much there really is to this franchise in terms of scope like is there more types of stories to tell in this universe or are we stuck with the template jason born story because they make a lot of noise in this movie about, oh, you know, we've got Overcome, we've got Larks, we've got all these other things that are far beyond what Treadstone was doing and all these other organizations were doing. Oh, and by the way, they're almost exactly the same thing. Like, there's almost no differentiation between the two. Like, if they wanted to explore the born world, you know, the the, the BCU, um, <laughs> why not do it in England or, you know, Spain and have like a, a British Jason Bourne? Or a Canadian calling Paul K. No. <laughs> um, yeah, just something different. This just feels like they've gone for um, the budget Jason Bourne. And I wrote down in my notes, and uh, and I've titled my notes this. It's uh, Baby Bjorn Legacy. <laughs> it does feel like that. And... I would love to get behind the whole chems thing, but it's so simplistic. It's <laughs> there is so many scenes where it's basically Jeremy Renner and Rachel Weiss, and he's like blues and greens, blues and greens, and she's like science, science. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I'm like, guys, you got to give me more than that. Blue greens, science. <laughs> Blue greens, science. Viral out, viral in, viral out. I'm like, oh my god. And sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, I love the writing of Tony Gilroy in a lot of other films. I love Dan Gilroy's writing in other films. But I feel like these two guys, like, why did not one of them tell the other? Like, we got to maybe knock out the number of times we say blues and greens and chems and science in this script. Like, I think there's something you could do with this, but they just take a very simplistic approach. And I'm wondering if that's because, you know, the stuff we've touched on, the larger world of born elements get kind of convoluted and confusing so maybe they were like, we've got to make this chem story very simple so people can hook on to that instead. I don't know. I don't think it really works, but uh, maybe that was the idea. Well, can you guys tell me the significance of the different pills? I can, actually. I made notes on this. Oh. So the green pills are for basically physical traits. So enhanced strength and stamina and what have you. Um, those are the ones they've already viraled out of. He doesn't know this, so he's taking the green pills. The blue pill is related to 
mostly, I guess, brain activity because it says intelligence, sensory abilities, and um, pain suppression. So the blue ones are the ones he's viraling out of later in the movie. So the idea is going forward from this film, agents could viral out of these two medications. See, what bugs me about all this is I've watched this film one point, I don't know, 1.5 times. If you, sure. If you, yeah, if you don't count the sleep bits. And I still don't understand the drug stuff. And the whole point was to make it simpler and approachable. And they've made it more complex because I, I think I understood Supremacy and Ultimatum. Is it just that it's not interesting? Well, I think it, it, it's, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's kind of one of those things of like, he's not doing anything that Jason Bourne can't do. Like, it's yeah. not like he has superpowers. Like, you just took a stupid person, and now he is seemingly a normal person, and he, he is also, like, a trained CIA agent. It, it Like, so it is kind of one of those things of, like, why do you need this? What What element does it add? You're never at any point thinking, like, oh, he's really going to die before they get this medicine. Uh like, like, there's no that 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 could have made an interesting element. Where there's well, there's only this amount left, and then it's him and some other guy that needs the blues or the greens, and then they're fighting each other for the last dose of the medicine or whatever. And we get this whole bit in, um, I believe it's Korea, where they are um, manufacturing a new medication that's killing off all the agents. So he's the last of them, but like we don't get a real sense of what that means. Like, what does it mean if this guy is the last agent running around on chems? Well, and the other guy, what was the, the one they added at the end? The, the, the locks guy, the locks guy. What's special about him? Like he can do everything that, that Aaron cross can do. And he doesn't seem to be on any sort of medication, but Josh, Josh, he's a, he's a, he's a prototype. He's in beta. You don't know what he can do. It's a it's a it's a wild card, baby. He can he can seemingly turn an entire bus around with a with a police car. And I feel bad for the actor Louis uh, Ozawa, who I saw in the movie Predators. I think he was quite good in that. But you know, a lot of other actors have been cast in these roles as these assets, and I think a lot of them had way more to do. This guy gets like fifteen minutes of screen time, and he's basically a glorified stuntman. He doesn't have any real character. Yeah, zero lines and- of dialogue. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, what do you want me to take from Larks? I don't even understand what Larks is, much less like why I should care about it. Especially when in the previous film, you have obviously Treadstone agents, which were the creme de la creme of agents back in the day. But they're like, hold on, guys. Forget Treadstone. Blackbriar. That's where it's at. I'm like, okay, well, I guess this is supposed to be better in some way, even though it seems completely the same thing as Treadstone. And then here we get Larks, where I go... I don't know what the difference is between that and Blackbriar. Do you know what I'd sooner they'd done with the whole Larks thing and having the one-up? I'd mm. rather they use the actors they had. I, I want to yeah. see something like Scott Glenn come back on the screen because he's only there for two minutes at the beginning and just say, don't worry, guys, activate Larks. And then like Ed, Ed Norton's eyes roll back and he's like, he rips his shirt off and just jumps out the window and flies off to fight him. <laughs> Some he's sort of like, mutant sleeper agent. Yeah. He's like, he's like, buyer smash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Turns into Hulk. I, I'd sooner have seen that. I honestly think that's better. 
or why not just bring back i'm forgetting the name of the actor um but the actor who played the asset in born ultimatum who left at the end edgar ramirez that's who it was edgar mm-hmm. ramirez plays him like why not bring just him back yeah or if this was a prequel you could have brought back uh uh what's his name i can't remember now he's british you know him we're <laughs> <laughs> talking about um clive owen yeah Sure. I mean, he, he looks yeah. a lot older now, but I mean, you can do stuff. Computer technology, de-age him a little bit. Sorry, if we're doing what we want, let's just get Franca Patente back. Yeah. From the dead, yeah. activate Lark so she just flies up out the grave. Why don't you just bring Sean Connery in, make him John, James Bond, and then hey, he could fight Aaron Cross. Be- better film. <laughs> Isn't there a movie called Darren Cross? It kept throwing me off the whole time. I'm pretty sure there's a book series called Darren Cross that they made into movies as well. Isn't that an actor? Darren Cross? There's Darren Chris? Isn't he with Kiss, the band? No, that's Peter Chris. Oh, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Speaking of names that got mixed up, though, they call the lead Aaron Cross in this. And all I can think about is Alex Cross, the character that Morgan Freeman played in Kiss the Girls. Yes, Darren Darren Cross is Yellow Jacket from Ant-Man. Oh, you're right. And Yellow Jacket's in this movie. But but I was thinking of the one that you just said. Yeah, Alex Cross. Alex yeah, Cross, um, yeah. It was Ta- a couple Tyler Morgan Perry. Freeman films. Yeah, Tyler Perry played him in the uh, the movie a handful of years ago. But yeah, you're right. Uh, Corey Stoll pops up in this movie, and he played Yellow Jacket. Boy, worlds are combining. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, bringing, bringing more credibility to your fact that there should have been superpowers in this movie. We got the Hulk. We got Yellow Jack. We got Hawkeye. Well, we got Kiss. <laughs> What's her name? We're going to rock uh, and roll all night. <laughs> uh, Rachel Weiss is in Black Widow as well. Yeah, good call. Good call. And, you know, I'm glad we're bringing up all these Marvel hero, uh, you know, connections because I was thinking about it when you're we saying, like, is this movie too complicated? The Marvel Universe is very complicated, but if you ask, you know, a lot of people that go to see, say, Endgame or Infinity War, they really understand what's going on and they can connect the dots. And I think it's very damning on this movie that it's also complicated, but it doesn't hold your attention enough to make you care. And I think that's the difference. I don't think it's that it's too complicated. I don't think it gives you a reason to care. Yeah, I mean, I did I did like the relationship between uh, Jeremy Renner and Rachel Weisz. It is a little weird that they're like, we're going to have these this new hot shot, like, forget Jason Bourne, we got a new guy. And your two main characters are like early 40s actors. It's like they're all they're both the same age as Matt Damon. My favorite part of the whole Jeremy Renner character is that they're like, this guy needs chems to be a physical specimen like this. <laughs> Jeremy Renner's like, damn right, baby. <laughs> well, okay. I, I'd be I'd be remiss if we don't sort of go through the main cast, though it's kind of hard to sort them out by IMDb. But uh, Jeremy Renner, in his one and only appearance as Aaron Cross, we've spoken about him a bit already, but how do you think he did? I thought he was great. I really like Jer- Jeremy Renner. And he has had a very odd career of like showing up and disappearing and showing up. Like, the first movie I've ever saw him in was SWAT. Did you see SWAT with Colin Farrell? Yep. That's from, like, 2004, and then I never saw him again until, like, Hurt Locker. And then he was immediately in the Avengers. I'm like, where the hell did he go? For, like, a decade. Didn't he get his head kicked under a train in SWAT? I think he did. 
Um, I remember him also from 28 Weeks Later, the sequel to 28 Days Later. He was a soldier in that. And I remember seeing that movie and thinking he was really effective in it. And then it was a few years or, you know, a couple years at least before we got Hurt Locker, which was him really like blowing up. (laughs) Pardon the pun. (laughs) 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 I wish I could say that was planned, but, um, you know, at that point forward, he's really rolling into stuff like The Town, for example, which he got an Oscar nomination for. So he had like two Oscar nominations from The Town as well as Hurt Locker. And then it was like, everyone wanted this guy. So you got Avengers as Hawkeye. He was brought into Mission Impossible to theoretically take that franchise over. That didn't happen. But nonetheless, he was really hot at this point. And I read an interview with him about this movie where he said like, he was very wary about taking on the Bourne legacy because it was like, well, I mean, audiences want Matt Damon. I don't know what this is going to be. But he said he was kind of like, eh, whatever. I got other franchises going. If this one doesn't work, well, hopefully one of the other ones does. <laughs> He's got that Hawkeye money coming in now. Would you That's take right. a, another Bourne movie with him and Matt Damon, though? Yeah, you know what? I would. And I think that has a lot to do with what Jeremy Renner brings this movie. What I like about... Aaron Cross is that physically he is in many ways a replica of a Jason Bourne, but he's kind of snarky. Like he he likes to make a lot of cutting comments at people. He's more open in terms of his personality. You know, you'll see that scene with him and Oscar Isaac at the start of the movie. He's much more approachable and he's much more conversational. And I found that kind of fun and a different dynamic in terms of the, you know, him on the run with Rachel Vice. Matt Damon was very silent a lot of that. Whereas, um, you know, Aaron Cross, he likes to talk. He's a little more of a chatterbox, which I did enjoy. So I would actually like to see him and Bourne paired up because I think it would be an interesting contrast. I'd actually like to see them against each other. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Well, just, yeah, make it make it uh, Cross versus Bourne. And that'll be like every movie you think they're going to fight to the death and then they fight for a little bit and then they're best friends. And you can have a line like, what happens when you cross Bourne? Yeah. yeah. Kims versus <laughs> no Kims. Do you find out at the end that both their mums are called Martha? (laughs) I'm waiting for that to happen in Godzilla vs. Kong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, with Renner, I I like that he sort of forged his own path. He didn't try to be Jason Bourne. He is his own man, and he does stand out in this film. I just think that a lot of the problems of this film are in the script. Yeah, because I think there's really fun stuff physically. I think Jeremy Renner's perfect for this movie. And he has scenes, you know, where he's like wrestling wolves. I loved all the wolf stuff in this movie. It reminded me of The Grey, a movie I also like a lot. Um, but all the physical stuff, there's a scene where it's like shot from the back of Jeremy Renner. I think it's all in one shot too of him like climbing up a house, going into the window and then gunning someone down. And I'm like, this is a guy that can pull off really convincing action. That's something Matt Damon could do as well. But if you need to replace Matt Damon, I think Jeremy Renner was a pretty good substitute. I just wish they'd found an angle on this character and his world that was more inviting, I think, for maybe a newer audience to embrace him on his own terms versus having so much baggage of Bourne. Because I think maybe if this movie had just been another Robert Ludlum adaptation that wasn't a Bourne franchise that could have been interesting or from the world of robert ludlam that could work but i think tying it so much to born kind of robs jeremy renner of his ability to take this in a new direction i I think i've got the title for the the sequel to this film 
Okay. Uh, it, it will not get people into the cinema. It will confuse the hell out of them, but I like it. Is it a hot cross buns? <laughs> no, hot cross board. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're both better than mine. I don't know what to do now. Uh, I was going to go with the double cross. Oh. Mm. It's a thinker. Yep, it's yep. a thinker. I, I wonder, though, if Matt Damon's agent is just like, hey, you, why is Aaron Cross's name getting mentioned in the title, but not my clients? <laughs> Could call it ballistic. <laughs> cross versus Bourne. <laughs> yeah, I, the, I think like the Bourne Cross would do. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it, I don't know. Like This movie ends with him and Rachel Weisz on a boat smiling, I, which is kind oh, of weird. I couldn't believe that the ending was the ending. Like once that Jason Bourne music hit, I was like, "Oh shit, this movie's over." I didn't know that yeah. we were at the end here. Nothing happened. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of a weird pat ending for this character, and apparently the fact that these two are still on a boat somewhere, <laughs> completely <laughs> invisible to the world, is uh, kind of frustrating. But I don't know. Did it work for you guys as an exit for an Aaron Cross? Because if we're never going to get this character again. Can you walk away from this movie satisfied that you saw the end of Jeremy Renner's character? I guess it makes sense for where he was going. He was meant to be dead. Yeah. He wants to he wants to get away and leave it all. He, well, he's hiding in the Philippines. It makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess it's the uh, it's the best conclusion we're going to get since we're not going to see him again. Never say never. <laughs> again. Yeah, I mean, I'd, like I said, I'd take it. I'd take it. I think I think his charisma is is it's something that they never even like tried to give back to Matt Damon, even after like he doesn't have amnesia anymore or anything. He's just always so serious. It was a, it was nice to see a little, uh, you know, levity in it once in a while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, um, let's go over to, I would say the second build person in this film, though it wouldn't look like that if you looked at IMDb, which is uh, Rachel Weiss as Dr. Marta Shearing. Um, I was not a big fan of this character. Interesting. Why, Scott? Um, because she doesn't have an arc. Not because she dropped your precious British accent. <laughs> I, <laughs> trust me, I, I try to get rid of it all the time. Um, no, it just felt like she was just there. She's just there to get him into the building to get him the injection, which is a real shame for a, a franchise that has done female characters well at times. Yeah, I... I... I struggle with this one because Rachel Weisz is a great actress, you know, mm -hmm. Oscar winner. Um, I like her in so many things, but here, I, I guess what I like about the character is that when you look at the previous Bourne films, it's Jason Bourne on the run and bringing in these women to run along with him, right? Like that's the case for the previous. And I like that in this movie, they're actually after her and Aaron Cross is brought into her story more. So, which is kind of interesting I think for me, the problem is, it's like you said, Scott, not a great arc to this character, really, other than being scared and on the run to, I guess, smiling on a boat. Um, she does get to do some action stuff in the chase at the end, which I thought was kind of cool. She's the one that really does take out the bad guy. But this movie depends a lot on the chemistry between the two actors. And whereas, like, Franca Patente and Matt Damon had chemistry, I did not really get any off of Jeremy Renner and Rachel Weisz. Well, you're meant to buy by the end that they've fallen in love, I guess. Are you? I, I was wondering that myself. Am I supposed to believe this? Uh, Josh, what do you think? 
Um, I did think they have chemistry, but I, yeah, I did feel right at the very end there. But also, like, like I said, I didn't think that it was the end of the movie. <laughs> so yeah. I, I did feel like that part. Once I realized it was the ending, I was like, oh, that is a little like she just got oddly flirtatious there out of nowhere. But yeah, I did like. I I also think they could have done more to build their relationship. Like he just kind of shows up and saves her life with no explanation to how he knew where she was or anything like that. I, I will say this, like Rachel Vice gets two of the best scenes in the movie. Um, the one, which I'll put a little below the other is the scene where they send like the quote unquote psychologist to her house mm-hmm. to interview her. And then they try to stage a suicide. I thought that sequence was incredibly well done. And Rachel Vice really pulls off that sort of frustration as they're trying to gaslight her. I thought that stuff was great. And also the best scene in the movie is the scene where her colleague, you know, is obviously being controlled by the government or whoever's, you know, trying to control the situation um, and kills everyone in her office. I think that scene is the best scene in the movie by a considerable margin. It's really chilling. And Rachel Weisz plays the terror of that very well. Yeah. I thought both of those scenes were amazing. I thought that, that everything that happens at that house was fantastic, especially that scene you talked about where he scales the side of the building. It's all one shot. Yeah. When that happened, I was like, man, that was really well shot. What did you think of the scene with the coworker with the gun? That it was it was intense. It was it yeah. it seemed real in a way where it belonged in like a real movie. You know what I mean? Like a movie set in real life, not a movie where it's like this is an action, clearly an action movie. Like that felt like it would have been in like a regular drama about a like workplace shooting or something. It was very intense. What did you think of that one, Scott? I was confused as to why the guy did it, but I guess I'm not supposed to ask these questions. So I think she was, she acted very well in the scene and, and you know, I, I definitely bought her fear and, you know, her ingenuity as well that got her out of that scene. But um, yeah, I, I was very confused as to why this guy decided to go all homicidal on there on the group of scientists. Well, they talk about how they've been dealing with uh, or experimenting with programmable behavior. So I think the idea was he was an asset that they were programming. Yet yet again, though, another reason to have that be a prequel. You know what I mean? Hmm. Have that sort of thing be what leads to their breakthrough of whatever training Jason Bourne received that wasn't medicine, you know? That's a good point, actually. I think... I have I was reading about um, a theory after I watched this film the first time uh, called the refrigerator theory or the icebox theory or whatever you want to call it. Are either of you familiar with that? No. Okay. So, uh, Alfred Hitchcock was the first one to sort of come up with it called the icebox theory. But basically it's you go to, to see a, sh- a show or a cinema, watch a TV show. And then as soon as you finish, you know, you, you leave and you go home and make your dinner and you open the fridge or you you take something out of the icebox and you think, wait, what? And you start to question things about the film that didn't actually logically make sense. And this film suffers a lot from that. I have so many questions about choices they made that that bring the film down for me. Like just that scene we were talking about with the the co-worker. Like, why is this happening? They didn't explain it to me, really. Um, And we've covered other questions that I've got about the film already. And I just found it really interesting that... um, that that was actually a concept that people use. Yeah, that's actually a good uh, a good concept. I like that. We'll have to remember that one going forward. The icebox theory, but um, the the coworker thing, I can go along with it because this is a world, you know, a fictional world where all these agents are basically 
uh, being controlled or they're like sleeper cell agents in some ways. Like I'm totally willing to go along with this, but it does sort of um, maybe strain credulity a bit that it's like her coworker there. You're like, okay, the one guy she, I guess, talks to at work turns out to be this assassin. I'll go along with it because they have a lot of exposition from Edward Norton and other characters saying this is apparently fine. This is, of course, working out as it should be, but it is a little bit of a head scratcher. I think it would have made more sense if it had been that agent, uh, the African-American agent that they had showed her uh, doing tests on. He seemed seemed very annoyed and aggravated by her. I think it would have made more sense if they were like, all right, we won't give you this yellow pill, but you're going to be like our cleaner agent. You're going to go here and just wipe everyone out. Or what if they won't give him his chems until he does it? Yeah, yeah. Like they should have kind of embraced that whole like you kind of become a junkie for this stuff. Like, it, you know, I mean, like you start really getting all, all of the good things that it gives you turns on you if you start like wearing off like your increased ability to fight turns into increased aggression if you're you know starting to fiend for this stuff controversially why not you just use the the larks guy yeah yeah you don't you don't explain who he is he just comes and kills everyone leaves and then later on you go oh larks what is this then he turns up again yeah he could have been like edward norton's secret project that nobody knows about and he just calls him up and's like go here go here he's an abomination I, I do wonder, though, just in terms of this isolated scene, though, this one scene of the coworker shooting everyone, uh, like, I totally agree with you in terms of the world building of Bourne. It makes a lot more sense if it had been like one of these, you know, recognizable physical specimen agents. But for the intensity of the sequence, is it scarier that it's a very normal looking everyman character? Yeah. And his facial expression, like, never changes. It was very creepy. Yeah, I, I believe... Uh, I'd have to look it up, but I seem to recall at the time when this came out in 2012, there had been a shooting or something like that somewhat before the release of this. And I remember that being brought up a lot in reviews, just how chilling the sequence was and how it felt like it was pushing the violence in a level or, or to a level that the Bourne franchise hadn't before. And that it was a little bit uncomfortable. It's a scene that now where I view it now, I go like, this is incredibly well put together, but it does feel a little at odds in terms of just how brutal it is with what we've seen in the previous Bourne films. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, it was pretty intense and kind of out of nowhere. (laughs) I think that's one of the problems of this film, is it just has these little bits that don't make sense when you tie it all together. I think that's why I enjoy it, though, or at least I can get enjoyment out of watching it, that there is so much good stuff. Like, watching Jeremy Renner wrestle a wolf, I'm like, I love this. This is awesome. It's just like what holds it together is you can't even, it's just kind of very, it's messy. Like it's a lot of threads being thrown all over the place because they aren't confident enough in telling their own story. They want to work in all this outside stuff. And so the whole thing gets just to be just kind of bogged down. When I think if it had been cleaner and held together tighter, you would have had a really satisfying spy story. Yeah. Take out all the Jason Bourne stuff and, you know, maybe in your advertisement or whatever, say, you know, from the creators of the Born Identity or in the world of Born or whatever, and then mm-hmm. just do it that way. Because I feel like all of that trying to tie it together to the government trying to sweep all the Jason Bourne stuff under the rug just kind of like muddied the waters to truly enjoy the movie. Because if you take all that out, I think you have a really enjoyable movie. 
Well, they, they, they sort of mess up the Pam Landy character from the last two films as well. Like, all, all that stuff she worked for is now gone. Yeah, no kidding, right? And the Noah Vossen character gets, apparently, he's off scot-free. Yeah, uh, and that just what, erases two films worth of work. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. And also, the, um, the Albert Finney character dies, obviously, suspiciously. Yeah. I, strange choices all around. Um, I'd be remiss if we didn't also speak about Ed Norton. He's probably the other main character in this film, I would say. I thought he was great. I, I really liked... I like Ed Norton anyways, but it was kind of refreshing to see him in a, in a kind of a real role. Because everything I've seen him in lately, kind of, not lately, but like since The Hulk, which was a long time ago now, is kind of like these art house type of movies. So it was nice to just mm. see him in like a normal movie playing like a... a a very like intelligent and like sneaky character, like because he's sneaky, but he's like upfront about it. Like he's like, "Yeah, we're doing all this dirty stuff, but that's that's the way the world is." You you got to feel a little bit bad for Ed Norton too. This movie comes out in the summer of 2012, the same summer as the Avengers, yeah. <laughs> Which he would have been the Hulk in theory. Yeah, yeah. Watching watching and... Jason or uh, watching Alex Cross take all the success. Aaron Cross. <laughs> exactly. Like, ouch. But uh, Edward Norton's one of those actors who has a lot of authority. That's what these roles really require. You know, Joan Allen had it. David Strathern had it. Chris Cooper had it. You've got to be able to just walk into a room, be surrounded by computers and other people looking up at you and just spout exposition and make it all sound authentic and real and intense. And I think he has it. Um, it's a bummer. This character is not seen after this movie. Because I feel like there's more story just in terms of what he's doing. But uh, I, I like Ed Norton. He's good. He's very vicious. Yeah. I like that. Uh, he, I, In terms of the whole, you know, suit in a room staring at a TV screen, which we have in all these Bourne films, I think he's probably up there with Joan Allen. He's, I don't, David Strathern I thought was really good. Um, I think I would put Strathern over Norton. Yeah, I think, I think you were higher on Stratton than I was in Ultimatum. Mm, okay. But yeah, I, I enjoyed his turn in the film. You, you needed someone that could sort of capture the screen when he was there and keep your attention. So I think Ed did a great job. And I liked Stacey Keach as his boss, I guess. Stacey Keach, you know, actor who's been around for decades upon decades. I thought he slotted really well into that Brian Cox-like role, you know, kind of the intimidating overseer. I, I, I will admit, I... A lot of these sort of uh, rather large white chaps are blending together in my head because I wasn't sure if he was in the past films or not. Yeah, he does fit into this world a little too well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he definitely took over that Brian Cox role, but I love him in everything I've ever seen him in. Yeah, he's he's a fantastic actor. and He's one who doesn't get a lot of FaceTime in big blockbusters. Like, you just don't see Stacey Keach getting cast that much. So I was excited to see him in a movie like this. Guys, any other characters you want to talk about? I think we should bring up Oscar Isaac. He was obviously up for the role of Aaron Cross. Um, he This was like kind of at that point where he was just about to tip into stardom. Everyone knew he was great because he'd been amazing in two bad movies. He was incredible as um, Prince John in Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. And he was also really good in Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch. And so it was like a lot of film fans at this time were really forecasting that uh, Oscar Isaac was going to blow up. We weren't quite there yet, but I thought he was 
really effective as an agent here. And I would have liked to have actually seen him, um, I don't know, get to do some action as opposed to be blown up <laughs> immediately. It's because he didn't dance. Yeah. If he danced in the film, we would have remembered it. <laughs> it was it like it was surprising to see him because like he was he was an actor that I didn't know him until Star Wars, and then like mm. now I'll I'll see movies and I'm like, oh yeah, that's Oscar Isaac. Like, and I had heard his name for a while, and I'm like, I don't know who this guy is, and clearly he was in movies like this. So seeing him, I was like, oh, there's Poe Dameron. <laughs> you didn't remember him from his unforgettable role as Apocalypse in X Men Apocalypse? I I did, but that was after. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's amazing. Where he has a scene where he has his hand on a TV and he's going, learning. <laughs> I'm glad you tried to do it. I was going to do the same impression, Cam. So I'm glad you took a punt at it. Yeah, I love Oscar Isaac. He totally deserves his own franchise in this sort of world. If they want to do a spy series with Oscar Isaac, sign me up. Yeah, he's going to play Moon Knight. I'm so excited. Yeah, that should be cool too. That'd be good. Um, right. So before we get to the knock list, folks, any final thoughts on the film? Uh, I'd say watch it. I really, I th- I thought it was enjoyable. Uh, it watch it. Um, if if not for anything else, but to to see a good uh Jeremy Renner film because he was he was really good in this. Well, I, I'll ask you a quick question, Josh. Do you wish you had seen Supremacy and Ultimatum before watching this film? Um, yeah, yeah, because I didn't know going in that it took place at the same time. Mm. So it would have been nice to to know that, but I also kind of blame that on the advertisement because when they were advertising this movie, they made it seem like it was not connected at all, and like they play that scene where they're like Jason Bourne's in New York, they play that in the trailer, making it seem like Jeremy Renner's running around New York doing stuff, and because of the way he's doing it, people think Jason Bourne's around, like he's the next Jason Bourne. He acts just like him. He's beating people up the same way. And then it just turns out to be someone else. But, like, that wasn't what they were doing at all. <laughs> uh, Cam, what about you? Um, Yeah, like, it's a movie, like I said, it's kind of a mess, but I enjoy it overall. Like, it's, it's very, very flawed. But the same way that some people, you know, I referenced at the start of this episode, some people find a lot of enjoyment in Halloween 3. I find a lot of enjoyment in the Bourne legacy, just in kind of being this odd project. But I feel like we should touch on as well the action in this movie, which I thought was really well done. Um, the bike chase gets a little too Paul Greengrassy. It's not as good as a Paul Greengrass chase, but it's pretty effective. Mm-hmm. Um, the chase in uh, Manila across the rooftops is a little too much like the Tangiers chase in Ultimatum, but it's still pretty well shot. Um, it's got some good action, effective action. So I could totally see... Um, people enjoying it just for that yeah i i uh i was interested to see if they kept up that same sort of cinematography style of the quick cuts and it didn't do it as much in this film so are you actually allowed to enjoy the fight sequences a little bit more which i mm-hmm. like yeah you can actually stay with the shot yeah it's it's really good filmmaking like tony gilroy is a really strong filmmaker and we've talked about in the past ones how he was kind of clashing with paul greengrass over the past born films and Part of me wonders if the magic of supremacy and ultimatum was that sort of that conflict between these two forces, Gilroy and Greengrass, and that they didn't necessarily see eye to eye, but their headbutting somehow resulted in magic. Whereas here, you remove Greengrass and you've got a somewhat effective movie, like, you know, hit or miss, but I think it's somewhat effective, but it's not, it doesn't have the magic. 
And, um, you know, the next Bourne movie we do on this podcast doesn't have Tony Gilroy involved. And uh, I'm not going to say anything I think about that movie, but it just wasn't the um, cultural hit that the other Bourne films were. So I wonder if there's something about these two guys, even though they kind of can't stand each other, somehow bring out great art. Sometimes you need that, that sort of uh, that tension on the set to really get something going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems to be an element of that franchise. But the one thing I'd be remiss to close off this episode without mentioning that is carried over from the past Bourne films is bad alternate names. Oh, <laughs> so what do we have? Aaron Cross, pretty badass name, maybe a little too close to Alex Cross. But we find out his real name is Kenneth J. Kitsum. Come on. It's not Paul K, but uh, it's pretty bad. And then the fake name he makes up when he's going into the pharmaceutical lab is Dr. Carl Brundage. <laughs> it's such a beige name. I guess that's the point, but these are very bad names. I'm kind of enjoying this element of the Bourne franchise I didn't pick up on the first time around. We'll have to make our own Bourne names someday. <laughs> yeah. So that kind of sums up my thoughts. What about you, Scott? Your final thoughts? Uh, one little note is there's a Colonel Hardy in this film, uh, which is cool to see. You know, in the uh, Edward Norton shouts out to all these staffers, uh, go see Colonel Hardy. He'll sort you out. And folks, I will sort you out. <laughs> uh, and the only other thing I noted was um, Jeremy Renner's beard. Mm, yeah, especially in the uh, the Alaska scenes at the beginning, that felt like it was glued on. <laughs> he has some weird looks in this because he's got that bad beard, but he also has like later when we see, I guess, a flashback where he's like injured and wearing like a skull cap or what was that like jeremy renner has very weird looks in this movie i mean he starts the film off naked uh in water very born uh-huh uh and then then yeah you just got the beard and I, I i don't like referencing this film very often but um it reminded me a lot of uh team america world police <laughs> <laughs> when the guy goes undercover and he just like glues a bit of hair on his face and i just like this looks awful you need to sort that beard out. And if that's actually his beard, I'm glad he doesn't ever have a beard. I feel like Jeremy Renner may be like myself and that facial hair is not our friend. Mm. Well, they had that in-between bit where he had the five o'clock shadow goatee. Yeah. <laughs> he had like a chin strap and a mustache, but it was all very five o'clock shadow. And then the rest of his face was shaved. It was very odd. I never trust a man with a goatee. <laughs> Something about it. Um, yeah, but that's it for me, really. So I guess we'll segue over to the question. Yeah. Right. So we're going to tackle whether this film makes the knock list. Uh, Cam, just for the listeners, can you run us through what the knock list is? Yes. The knock list is the need to see official classics of the Spy Hearts canon. These are the films we feel belong in the pantheon of great spy films. Right. And with that, Josh, does the Bourne Legacy make the knock list? Um... I liked it, but I, w I would have to say no. I don't think it's it's up there as one of the greatest spy films of all time. Um, definitely like an enjoyable action movie, but n yeah, nowhere near the an all-time great or classic. Fair enough. Cam? You know, I was expecting like a real like plunge into the darkness after Ultimatum, but it's a movie that I enjoy. It's just 
look, it, of course it does not make the knock list. It does not get a yes for me. It's a, it's a no, but you know, uh, I'm warmer on it than I was. It's, it's so such an interesting little experiment, but it's a no. Right. That's two no's making my vote completely pointless, but for the hell of it, Colonel Hardy is uh, is going to go with no. Uh, there's no way this is making a knock list. As Cam said, it's not a bad film. It just shouldn't be up there with North by Northwest. Right. Yeah. Pretty simple. And with that revelation, the dossier on the baby Bjorn legacy is complete <laughs> <laughs> and filed as classified. Before we continue, folks, uh, we want to send a bit of love out to the Best Film Ever podcast. They're uh, friends of the show. Uh, They cover some of the greatest films out there. That's why they're the best. And they have a little message for our listeners. Hi, my name's Ian. And I'm Liam. And we have a film review podcast. And it's called Best Film Ever. And we're trying to agree on what's the best film ever. But we don't always agree. You see, I teach film studies. And I own my own record toy shop. So I tend to analyze the films a bit more academically. And I tend to look for the heart. Yeah, but you think the crows are romantic comedy. Well, there is romance. Nah. And there's comedy. That doesn't count. So you see, we don't always agree. But that is what makes it so fun to do. So that's best film ever. Give it a listen and we'll catch you on the flippity flap. The flippity flip flap. There you go, folks. Best film ever pod available on all podcast platforms. Now, Cam, before we talk about what we're doing next week, Josh, tell us about your podcast. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we are the Four Nerds by Nerds podcast. We are a movie-centric podcast for the most part. We will be moving away to more uh, other topics like video games and such. Um, but yeah, we we do a twice-a-week show. Uh, usually we do commentary tracks on Mondays to your favorite nerdy movies. And then on Friday, we'll have a guest or a discussion piece. We also have a YouTube channel where we make videos uh, reviewing TV shows. We'll have uh, Let's Play game videos going up there soon and a whole bunch of new content. Um, but as far as the podcast, yeah, we do commentaries. We do news, reviews. Um and you can find us on Twitter at FNBN Podcast and on Facebook and Instagram, FNBN, the number four on the letter U. Josh, I just have a question. Is there an episode in particular you would recommend people check out uh, just as an example of the podcast for those wanting to wade in? Um, I'd say our most popular episode is probably Die Hard. Um, but I would recommend like Ninja Turtles. Oh, mm. very nice. Yeah, I love the the classic 1990s live action Ninja Turtles. It's it's just a, such a great movie, and uh, we both really get into it so much that it's it's fun to listen along. Very cool. I'm gonna check that out because I did a rewatch of the original Ninja Turtles a handful of years ago and wrote a whole piece about it on my blog, and it was a lot of fun to go back to. Yeah, one of the best one of the best comic book movies ever. It is it still holds up. It does. And uh, there you go, folks. Four nerds by nerds. If you can't find them, just search on our feed because we're always tweeting at each other anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Josh, thank you for joining us this week. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a real. This was a lot of fun. So, Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, Scott, we're going from blue and green to red. We're going to talk about 1985's The Man with One Red Shoe, starring an aspiring young actor named Tom Hanks. I am so excited about tackling this film. I've never heard of it, and I've, I've recently watched the trailer, and it looks outrageous. Yeah, I've never seen it either, so I'm looking forward to this. Any member of it, Josh? Uh, I know of it, and I've definitely seen the movie cover, but I've never actually seen the movie. 
There we go. Well, folks, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out The Man With One Red Shoe and join us next week. Of course, you can follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, you can make it. You're a warrior. <laughs>